Good morning, and welcome to episode 1535 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast on Fangraphs.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, and with us today is Andy McCullough, national baseball writer at The Athletic. Andy, hello. Hey, what's up, guys? Not much. We're going to be chatting with our pal Andy about an article that he and Rustin Dodd composed about the best baseball songs ever, an article that I didn't expect to enjoy, and I did. (laughs) (laughs) You are clearly not an athletic commenter. Uh, (laughs) The comments are a bit, I assume we will spend more time on the comments than, well, maybe maybe on the articles. Before we get to that, though. Uh, two things, two articles that have been published on the internet that I, I have uh, things I want to mention about. One is an article I wrote. It was inspired. It was uh, prompted by, instigated by an email from listener Mark, who discovered this odd factoid on a 1987 Don Mattingly card and wanted me to investigate it. And so I did. I'm very proud of how that one turned out. And I hope you'll check it out. That's up at ESPN right now. But in the process of investigating this mystery, I got the privilege of talking to a bunch of people who were in the baseball card industry in the late 80s and early 90s, which is when I was a an avid baseball card collector. Pretty, I mean, I would probably would say an obsessive baseball card collector. My number one hobby was collecting baseball cards. My number two hobby was sorting baseball cards. And so I talked to this guy, Phil Carter, who was the, the sports editor, basically, for Topps at the time. So Phil is the guy who produced these cards, these sets of baseball cards. So every year a new set would come out and I'd be, you know, I'd go buy packs for a year and get, you know, thousands of those cards and stare at them and memorize them and and then sort them. And uh, of course, people were producing those. I never really thought about it, but people were producing those those cards. And talking to Phil Carter, uh, I was surprised to say was a very profound and somewhat nerve-making experience. I felt like I was talking to a bona fide celebrity in my life, in my childhood, a person who had a huge impact in my life. And now, if I talk to a, a baseball player, I do not feel that way, even though they're famous and, and, and very successful. If I even were to talk to a baseball player who was huge in my childhood, I don't think I would really care. I don't think I'd have any particular emotion about it. Even if it was like Willie Mays, I don't think I'd really care that much. I, I might just think, ah, Willie Mays, that's going to be good content. Uh, but <laughs> Phil Carter, I was totally moved by talking to Phil Carter. So I wanted to ask each of you, I assume each of you is also somewhat numb to the experience of talking to ballplayers, but is there anybody in the in the game, in the sport, in the any any aspect of the sport that you think if you were to interview them, you would actually feel a little bit of sweaty palms? Hmm. I think I've had that experience with some people, and I think it's generally writers, right? It's writers I really admire because that's what we do, and so maybe we admire them because we aspired to be writers. I didn't really aspire to be a baseball player. I know you did at one point, but I think for me it was when I met Roger Angel, which happened on two occasions. And neither time did I feel like I really nailed it or somehow conveyed 
how much I care about Roger Angel in a way that would somehow cut through the decades and decades of accolades he has received and the people who've come up to him and said, I love your work. I doubt I made an impression and he will always remember the the thing that I said, the compliment I said, but I walked up to him once at Yankee Stadium when he was there for Derek Jeter's last game and I was there writing about it too and I just sort of accosted him and said something awkward because it was one of those things where I didn't have anything to say really but I just felt like I would kick myself later if I didn't say something so I just kind of went up to him and said hey I really like you and and, uh, and walked away <laughs> I don't know exactly what I said but that's what it amounted to I didn't have some profound observation about his work I didn't have a, a favorite passage that no one else ever quotes and I read it back to him and he said yes that's the best sentence I've ever written and no one else has recognized that that was the pinnacle of my power so nothing memorable happened and then another time I met him at this uh, coffee club he belongs to this like private club that my great uncle also belongs to and so I went and it was like a, a watch party for Thelma and Louise for some reason <laughs> they, they, they do movies and uh, this Roger is the Angel. most like old New York <laughs> shit imaginable like <laughs> Good yeah. lord. Yeah, and so it was Thelma and Louise, and Roger Angel really likes Thelma and Louise. So he was giving some introductory remarks about the movie, and then we put the movie on, and he got very upset during the movie because the screen was too dark, and it was like very dark. Like it, They closed the blinds and everything, but it was still very hard to see, and especially in the indoor scenes, you just couldn't see anything. And so I just watched the whole movie with Roger Angel like muttering about how it was too dark and being too <laughs> annoyed that you <laughs> you couldn't actually see the movie wow. uh, so he wasn't in the best mood but then I went up to him and after and just uh, said something innocuous I, I think uh, again I failed to say anything memorable or insightful so and this was a specifically a social club so unlike yes. Yankee Stadium where you're a fan accosting him in this case he is there to be greeted by others who are there. Sort of. Like, he's a member of this, and he it's it's like a, I don't know, like a gentleman's club. It's not just for gentlemen, I don't think. Wait, I don't, what? I'm not, gentleman's I'm, club, man. Gentleman's club. Do you know meaning. what that word not, means? <laughs> not, <laughs> not that kind, but, you know, like one of those old school clubs what? where gentlemen were... go to sit in libraries and read books and have uh, liquor served to them and Did cigars. Did you go to a burlesque show with Roger <laughs> You know, Thelma and Louise is rated R, so you and Roger Angel were watching adult movies. Oh, my God. Anyway, Uh, it's uh, something he belongs to, and I don't, but I had basically like a guest pass because my great uncle goes there. And so I think it's not the type of place where you are generally accosted by fans who are just eager to greet you because it's maybe kind of gauche to do that at this club because there are probably other literary figures there and uh, they probably don't want fans coming up to them all the time and expressing their admiration but I kind of broke that rule because it's Roger Angel so anyway I've tried to formally interview him a couple times including on this podcast and that hasn't worked out but I have uh, talked to him twice and it was if anything embarrassing for both of us you also uh, wanted to get him to blurb our book and our editor yeah said we were not allowed to reach out to him i didn't we i thought we sent a wait what (laughs) Is that true? I thought we sent a copy. Our editor came up. Our editor told us to come up with a list of people that we would like to to reach out to for blurbs Uh and basically said, 
you there are two tiers here. There are your the ones that you actually have a relationship with right. them, and then like the moonshots. And they said you can only we will only allow you to reach out to one moonshot candidate okay. because there's something like there's I don't know I guess there's something sort of transactional in the requests for blurbs, right. and they don't want to like have like you they they basically don't want every author asking Michael Lewis because they want to have like a like a we're still cool kind of vibe with Michael Lewis and so they only let us reach out to one and Roger Angel was not the one but I think Ben secretly uh (laughs) had like a courier service deliver the book yeah I think we I I somehow conveyed a copy to him I think it may have been through my great uncle I think he maybe just handed off a copy at that club when he was there by the way Wikipedia page for gentlemen's club a gentleman's club is a private social club originally set up by and for British upper-class men in the 18th century and popularized by English upper-class men and women in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Clearly the primary meaning of gentleman's <laughs> club. <laughs> All right. I went to gentlemensclub.com and uh, it, it, it immediately, I swear to God, it, it uh, sent me to chatterbait.com. So I think you might be wrong, man. <laughs> okay. uh, I can't top that, but I can try. I once followed Gary Smith into a bathroom because I thought it was him, and it was. Uh, this was like right after I, uh, I graduated from college and I was working at the Star Ledger, and it was in uh, the 2009 World Series when the, and I was writing sidebars when the Yankees were playing the Phillies, and Gary Smith had lived in Philadelphia for a long time, and he had been, uh, I guess he was getting started on some of the, the work related to, well, I guess this was, no, this I don't know, he was just there for the World Series or whatever, and uh, I saw him in the press box, and I was like, is that Gary Smith? You know, because like Gary Smith doesn't show up in press boxes. And so I just, he was like walking away. And so I just like kept following him until he just walked into the bathroom. And I was like, well, I'll just <laughs> go wash my hands or something. And so I didn't say anything to him until a couple years later when I met him. But I went with a good line. I said, you probably don't hear this very often, but I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> and he smiled and chuckled. He's a very nice man. Did you tell him you had previously followed him into a bathroom? No, that seems like maybe a third conversation <laughs> yeah. type thing. I do think I would get a little nervous if I was talking to like Hank Aaron or Willie Mays or Sandy Koufax. Mm-hmm. But I like maybe once a year I write about poker and I end up talking to poker players. Poker is like my number one uh, hobby and I'm not very good at it, but I always like find myself like stretching my own poke like just trying to show them that i know what i'm talking about so they don't Mm -hmm. like treat me like a rube uh but it it just sounds so embarrassing they'll be like oh do you play poker i'm like oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah man i yeah i'm i'm pretty uh I'm, I'm, I've been playing the 5-5 five, five game at the bike, and uh, yeah, they're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I play 100-200. Um, so it's just, it, I, I, it's so embarrassing. Like, my interviews with poker players are, uh, on the one hand, fascinating to listen back to, because I feel I'm just, like, enraptured by everything they're saying, because I find it so interesting, and just impossibly cringy hearing my own questions. So, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Good. We've, uh, we've answered that one. So I, I mean, I would be. Keep I would it be... together when you talk to Phil Carter. Yeah, he was great. He was a fantastic interview. So Dave Jameson had written the book uh, that I mentioned recently, "A Mint Condition," which is about the baseball card industry, and particularly during the uh, junk wax era. And he had had a, a line in there, a mention that 
tops like basically wouldn't comment on anything because like they're kind of a famously closed off company and their line to him was something like you know we might want to write a book someday too you know and so i was sort of uh, this was a tops baseball card and i was kind of expecting to get nowhere uh, with tops employees and then i just uh cold called phil carter and and uh, he like gave me two hours and told me all sorts of uh, of great junk so uh he was great it's fantastic great the other article on the internet is that Pedro, Pedro Mora, author of the uh, Sack of Flour article at The Athletic, uh, that uh, we had talked about the secondary aspect of that article, that he, that he, had, dis- he had discovered the uh, roaming chicken in the same game. And Pedro solved the mystery of the chicken as well, hmm. which it's great. It's a great article. We'll link to it and you should read it. And, you know, he talks to the person who smuggled the chicken in and describes how the chicken was smuggled in and all of that. And it's great. But I just think that the lead is fantastic. So I'm going to read the lead of this article. It's like the first like five paragraphs, basically. On September 4th, 1971, 19-year-old Charlie Roberts invited a young woman on a date to Dodger Stadium. A group of his buddies from his hometown planned to sit in the right field bleachers that night. But Roberts thought better of subjecting Bonnie to his friends. One of them... A 19-year-old named Paul Eldridge was planning to unleash a rooster onto the outfield. So, Roberts and Bonnie drove and sat separately from the rest of the Redlands crew. The evening was going well when Roberts decided, in the bottom of the fifth, to try to impress his date by alerting her that something wild was about to happen. From their loge seats down the third baseline, he pointed toward the outfield where Eldridge had just dropped the rooster below the wall. Just then, a massive sack of flour fell from the night sky onto the infield, leaving players shaken on the field, a plume of smoke in the air, and confusion in the stands. How did you know that was going to happen? Robert's date asked in shock. He didn't, he said. He had told her to look to where the rooster was. They did not go on many more dates. I mean... It's like it really, you could imagine feeling like you were in a simulation if those two things showed up so precisely as Pedro recounts. I mean, if there had been a chicken four innings earlier in the same game, that would have made for a weird night at the park. But the fact that they came so coincidentally is some like, you know, opening opening sequence in Magnolia sort of a, a vibe. Yeah, imagine being upstaged like that. You smuggle in a rooster, a rooster and at and the very moment oh, yeah. <laughs> that you Just unveil it, a sack of flour falls exactly. from the sky. Yeah. I'd feel so cheated. Furious. All right. We're going to talk about music here. Andy and Rustin Dodd, who's also at The Athletic, wrote a list of the 30 greatest baseball songs of all time. And I'll spoil the ending, which a lot of people uh <laughs> were shocked by twist (laughs) which is that they were not reading a 29 song build up to center field at number one but in fact center field is nowhere on the list i want to talk about the concept of um baseball songs and how you guys came up with this list and what standards you use to decide where songs would rank because there's like a real definitional problem here not not problem but challenge not just with the word baseball songs, but also with the word greatest, which um, you can see there's a, there's some sort of inconsistency from song to song. And I wondered how you guys square that. But let's just first talk about center field. You were accused in the comments. <laughs> By the way, if you want to know the demographics of your readers, this is a great exercise because I'm sure that we all think that we're writing for people who are kind of like us, kind of our age, kind of cool. 
uh, like us. <laughs> we imagine <laughs> that we yeah, mu- like we cool. we have a sort of an idea. Normal that- guys who watch <laughs> Thelma and Louise, and Roger <laughs> exactly. Angel, and follow, follow Gary Smith in the bathroom. In the bathroom. Exactly. Yeah, and then you write this article, guys. and then you write this article, and you realize that you know we're all every baseball writer. Every baseball writer is like writing for eighty percent boomers. Yeah. And they all came out to oh yell at you for disrespecting John Fogarty. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, it, you, that the point you just made is an editor at The Athletic, Casey Borowski, made the exact same point to me. And she said something to the effect of, you know, one of the big challenges of our jobs is I just never know who we're writing for. And she was like, well, now I know. Like, now, now we have a really good idea who reads our site. Yeah, so, I have to say, I, I've read many athletic articles. I'm a, a subscriber. I've read many of yours. And almost unfailingly, I will see that some of the comments say, this is why I subscribe to yep, the athletic. Every this single is, one. This yeah. is, and <laughs> We're famed have, for having the nicest comments. Actually. I have a, a, a running thread on Slack with a colleague where we just exchange <laughs> these very happy athletic subscribers yeah. who just can't stop saying that this is exactly why they subscribe because we just can't believe. Like I edited Baseball Prospectus. Sam did too. And we had great commenters. But I don't recall seeing that often that – commenters would say this article justifies my subscription and yet every other athletic comment (laughs) says that and so we've speculated are they are they stuff in the ballot box here are they somehow having (laughs) fake commenters who are saying that this is why that this justifies the subscription anyway i see that all over the place i think this is the first athletic article where i've seen the opposite (laughs) in the comments which there's definitely been some (laughs) other ones but this was definitely the one with the lowest stakes uh this was the this was the one that seemed to upset people for for no real reason like we weren't making a big point we just you know that song just sucks like, I, don't <laughs> I have to ask how much of your motivation for this ranking was oh, the big reveal at the end of trolling everyone by uh, so, omitting center field so you guys aren't going to believe this because i guess people just don't believe this i don't even think we had a conversation about it <laughs> Like, we started talking about this maybe a week or two before it came out. Rustin sent me a text, you know, something to the effect of, like, you know, we, you know, we're in contact all the time just, you know, talking about whatever. And he was like, you know, it'd be like a, like a, like a stupid idea for a story, but maybe could work. Like, why don't we, like, rank the best baseball songs? And I was just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, Okay. Because, like, you know, look, these are, I mean this in the non sort of, like, in the, Obviously, uh, we're all exceedingly fortunate to be in the positions we are. They were able to work from home and, you know, our health is we're not having to put ourselves at risk professionally and all that sort of stuff, all the necessary caveats. But like these are desperate times in terms of trying to come up with story ideas. You know, it's not easy. So like you kind of have to, you know, throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. And this was definitely, you know, this was Russ's idea. Like, hey, you know, we should we should rank baseball songs like, okay, yeah, well, let's let's do it. And you know, he came up with the initial master list of like, I don't know, it was maybe like 60 or something like that. And like, we kind of started paring it down. And I don't even think, and we did a lot of this over text. And I think maybe one of us texted the other like, yeah, center field sucks, leave it off. And then just like, moved on, didn't think about it at all. Like, there was no like, whoa, we might get some blowback or like, do you think we should put in a caveat or mm, man, I think like uh, maybe we should let people know why it was just like, no, nah, that song sucks. Like whatever. <laughs> and then the, the story came out and it was just like, you know, chaos The yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> Ben Gibbard from Death Cab put it on Instagram and congratulated us on graduate level trolling. Yeah, uh, the level of vitriol in there. It's... Which, yeah, which, uh, like, I guess, like, that is the best kind of trolling when you just do it, like, naturally, you know? Like, when you, like, that's that's actual trolling is when, you know, you're not doing it on purpose, maybe. But, yeah, like, it, our motivation wasn't to talk about, like, how center field sucks. We just kind of like, we're trying to come up with a story idea and we both like the mountain goats. Uh, what <laughs> you know? was, was center field one of the 60? Uh, I think so. Yeah. But it was, just, but then we're like, yeah, that song, that song sucks. Do you think if you had done the top 60, would it have made it? Pro- probably, but, but yeah, but it also, it would have been like number 57 and people would have been like mad about that. Too. Yeah. A lot of people were mad though, that you didn't, even mentioned that it wasn't yeah. an omission like i think i think in, if we could do it over again there were two things that i would do over again i would probably have another steve goodman song i think it's called uh like a a dying cup dying or Cus, a cup right. last wish or whatever which is actually a really good song and we just yeah we we biffed that one we should have included it um, but we already had go cubs go because i think go cubs go whips ass but whatever and then we probably just should have put in like a note about center field so it didn't seem like that was the whole point uh, of the story was to just like <laughs> not have it you know and i don't know we probably could have would have pointed out that rustin and i both at different times covered the kansas city royals and before every spring training game at surprise stadium they play center field and it yeah. you know causes some serious you know like negative memories uh when I, every time i hear those compressed drums that's the thing i think i mean i feel sort of the same way about center field and we talked about this sam i think because i remember saying that it's overplayed and i'm sick of it and i don't really like it and didn't you sort of defend it because i i mean i think if we could all just have the the neuralizer from men in black and hear center field for the first time yeah we would probably say, oh, that's a pretty good song. I mean, it's catchy. Certainly, no, it's got a man, hook. man, it's not good. It's got I... weird phrasing. It's awkwardly. I mean, the <laughs> lyrics, some of the the lyrics are awkward. But if I could forget the fact that I've heard it at every ball game I've ever yeah. been to, and it's been seared into my brain, and I'm sick of it, and I never want to hear it again, <laughs> I think it would at least be in my top 30, <laughs> probably. Yeah, but I, I'm going to uh, answer that. But first, uh, I w- would like to say I'm reading the comments uh, in full. And here's a great comment very incomplete list how about take me out to the ball game oh my i'm god. not sure of the actual title <laughs> oh but god. it's baseball's anthem played oh and god. sung at most baseball games seventh inning stretch yeah. andy how'd you got, give it off what is I, this guided by voices when you could have done take me out to the ball game or whatever its actual title is i got an incredible dm from uh yeah by the way what would it's what would his actual title be that's a good question of what the, what you know but I got an incredible DM from uh, from Riley Breckenridge of uh, you know Thrice and Productive Outs who said uh, you should do a follow up story the the worst songs about baseball that's just center field and take me out to the ball game uh, which would I mean that would have been you know that's graduate level trolling I guess yeah yeah I kind of feel like a lot of the reason that people hate center field is the repetition like Ben says. I also feel like it's partly so of all the artists on this list, 
John Fogarty is the best artist. He would be the single best artist on this list if if he had written a baseball song. Well, okay, except I guess Paul Simon. Paul Simon's on there. Paul I Simon's mean, on there. Bob gonna, Dylan's on there. I but, mean, not to be super sports writer-y, but like Springsteen's good. Uh, f- uh, all right, but but Fogarty <laughs> is an all-timer, right? Fogarty's the, like Fogarty's certainly one of the thirty best guys who's ever written a song about baseball. And That's the, true. I feel like the fact that this is <laughs> he's probably like, five or so. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, I'm cutting the, you off. The fact that it's the, the it's a 1980s production by Mm -hmm. a great artist from a you know like a great recording artist gives it a cheese factor that if it were written by you know some somebody else on here like terry cashman friends i mean you know let's be honest you have number three is talking baseball by terry Cashman. have you listened to talking baseball i'm not denying i'm not denying that talking baseball is a good song I am saying that Terry Cashman wrote a novelty song. There's a line, I was reading about this, and there's a line in the Terry Cashman Wikipedia page. While the song is well-recognized today, it was all but ignored by typical Top 40 radio during its chart life. (laughs) Yeah, it's a trash song. I like it. It's sort of cute, and it it hums, but it's not a good song, right? Like, if if John Fogarty Mm -hmm. had written both center field and talking baseball we would hate talking baseball oh, way that's, more no that's a bit we hate center field. The nice that's thing about talking baseball it's endlessly adaptable so you get talking softball and you yeah. get the the team specific versions of talking baseball so everyone gets their version I of think, yeah, have you ever just... you've never heard put me in coach i'm ready to play second base i mean they've <laughs> oh got one gosh. for every position ready in, to, yeah, in, i can be second base i, I can, can be, be offensive <laughs> tackle there's, you know, there's one for all, all the, every sport so Sam, I think that I, I think, think that there is the fact that yeah. you're conflating John Fogarty's like incredible output with this garbage song. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm saying that it is the fact that we know that John Fogarty is way better than this hmm. that we are angry that this song exists as arguably his most recognizable and yeah. most played song. And so that's not a terrible you know, take. Like All everybody's right. like you know to Bob Dylan's very lucky that he wrote Catfish in 1975 and not 1985 because whatever production was happening to Bob Dylan music in 1985 <laughs> would have also been like all-time bad. And yet, you know, the chords would be the same and there's there is a hook in that song. I don't hate it, although I hate it a lot more now than I did the first time I heard it. It's not a song that I'm like dying to hear again. But so this goes though to the question, part of the question too, which is, did you and Rustin have any conversation about the value of the song versus the actual connection to baseball? Because like talking baseball, again, not a good song, uh, exactly, but it is very much about baseball. And other songs on here are good songs, and they're not at all about yeah. baseball. Some of them are like the Sam Miller baseball movie the, rule applied to music. The, yeah, like the Strokes song in here is not about the Mets at all. It's just called Ode to the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing yeah. about baseball in it at all. The Fall Out Boy song has absolutely nothing, nothing to do the with lyrics the, of the, yeah. the The lyrics do not include the title. It just has a baseball title. You have the Kanye song, Barry Bonds, which is just a pun on the word hit. Uh, and that's it. That's the entire uh, use of baseball. And that's sort of a challenge. I mean, really, the the number one song, the John Darnell song, is Cubs in Five. And that's 
one line about baseball. Now, I will say that it is by far the best line. Like mu- musically, like the high point of that song is when when he says Chicago, you know. Uh, so yeah. like that, it is. I I think that qualifies. I think all these qualify. But I'm just wondering if if th- this was like kind of like there were two inputs and you tried to sum the inputs. So like better song but less baseball, or or worse song but lots of baseball. Did did you talk about that? I suppose I could give a long answer to kind of unwind it, but no, d- d- no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, we try. Yeah, like I don't. We didn't. <laughs> we didn't really think about it on like a metatextual level. Well, I guess I think it was more. What qualified it as a baseball card? So, like, I was talking to it, like feel. You know, the Supreme Court definition of pornography. A couple of days before this ran, I had actually been having a conversation with Patrick Dubuque, who was talking about how there are no good baseball songs and that has always uh, baffled him. And so Mm. he wrote, he wrote, I can't figure out why this would be. If Sufjan Stevens can write a song about Adlai Stevenson, I feel like someone in 2020 could sit down for a couple hours and put together uh, something about Lou Whitaker and, and Alan Trammell is take me out to the ball game. So definitive a piece of music that other baseball songs have to sound like it. Or is it just that lyrically sports don't fit into the way most people write? I'm trying to think about sports songs in general. And the only one leaping to my head is this sporting life by the Decemberists. And I suggested that I said, if someone, I actually said, if someone were to put together a list of the best baseball songs, I bet Mrs. Robinson would end up number three because it says the name Joe DiMaggio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't include Mrs. Robinson. You did include uh, the Fallout song, Boy song that just uses <laughs> an illusion of. Yeah. Uh, so no how did Paradise you get... by the Dashboard Light. That's not no a par- baseball song. Well, so <laughs> it's Paradise more of by the Dashboard Light. Okay, so we go these. to. Dude, these Paradise... are desperate times. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> we're trying, we're churning, man, trying to like come up with content. Like, fuck, there's no games. So Paradise by the Dashboard Light is uh, basically it's like a like a seven minute song. One one movement of that song is some voice in non-singing is like uh giving play-by-play to a baseball game phil rizzuto yes oh okay so and that is that that's a minute and a half of of literal baseball being described (laughs) but it's also the very worst part of that song that is that's what i was going to say yeah it's the aesthetically it's awful so how so how did you what did you throw out i guess what did you decide was not a baseball song that uh, that Ramon song, "Beat on the Brat," where he says oh, "Beat on the Brat" with bat. a baseball yeah. bat. Yeah. What about uh, the, uh, the what Beastie about Louisville Slugger by Easy E? No, that one didn't make it. Uh, the Beastie Boys song that referenced uh, Sadahara O. Oh sure, you, uh, but you did have you did have. <laughs> man. Here's another hit, Barry Bonds. Yeah, but that song's called Barry it's called Bonds. Barry Bonds yeah. And I think and mm. Kanye, I don't know. I was reading like, dude, for this I was like reading like MTV.com articles from like 2008 and like, you know, watching Pete Wentz like videos with, you know, like alt press. Like I was getting super deep into, you know, internet 2.0 culture on this one, maybe 3.0, whatever. Yeah, the Barry Bonds thing, I guess there's like the idea was that you know, Bonds was the best hitter in the world, and you know that that's how far this this hit with Lil Wayne was gonna go. It was gonna go Barry Bonds distance. I, you know, 
Yeah, and there's some good songs that have baseball-related <laughs> lyrics, but you would not think of them as baseball songs, like yeah. the, like for the turnstiles, the Neil Young song from On the Beach, and the last verse is uh, what all the Bush League batters are left to die on the diamond, and uh, something else in the stands, the home crowd scatters for the turnstiles. I don't really think of that as a baseball song, and it doesn't come to mind when I think of baseball right. songs. But even that, that's you know an explicit baseball reference. It's a verse. If you had put baseball in the title more explicitly, we might think of it as a baseball song. But Yeah, I mean, if I remembered that song existed, it might have been like number four on this list. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you guys wrote this with an intro about how baseball and music go together. And like you've got this argument that, with the quote, the marriage between music and baseball dates more than a century. The attraction, John Darnell says, is simple. We all die. We all consider our own mortality. And athletes, they get old. The implication is that you have found 30 good songs here 30 good baseball songs here and could you have rewritten this article with a intro that was all baseball songs are trash and here are 30 examples <laughs> or you know don't you have a job right your job is working for espn all right you like you don't need to edit the athletic all right pal uh <laughs> yes i mean there uh, look i i i, <laughs> I didn't <laughs> Did not expect this story to be um, <laughs> such a uh, an aesthetic. Uh, what, what's it called? A firebrand or third uh, rail? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we really like you know. I I did not expect this to be a talker, as it were. <laughs> I think uh, it's because you uh, called it, or someone called it, the thirty greatest baseball songs of well, all we, time. That's if what you we said called it. Yeah, Andy and Rustin's list of thirty <laughs> songs. Here are thirty songs that we just thought of when yeah. we were texting. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, I, I'm 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 being a, a little more, uh, you know, facetious, I guess, because you guys are my friends. And but fuck, I mean, you know, we're <laughs> like we're just trying to come up with content and to, <laughs> you know, to like keep every. You know, this is these are hard times. Yeah. Yeah, we could have. We we probably if I if I would do it over again. Yeah. There are three things now that I would change. I'd add the a uh, dying Cubs fan or a Cubs fans whatever the fucking song's called. I uh, <laughs> would have put in a, a caveat about center field, and we probably would have noted something in the intro about how songs about baseball actually aren't all that great. Mm -hmm. The problem is, you know, we're trying to draw eyeballs into our, our work. And if we write a story that says, hey, here's the 30 best baseball songs, you should know this going in, though. All these songs suck. And uh, you're not going to like any of them. And not only that, we left off the one you're thinking of. So uh, please subscribe to The Athletic. It's a really good site. It'll help you. You can read Ken Rosenthal. <laughs> night, night Game by Paul Simon is a masterpiece. That's and, a weird fucking song, and, man. And yet, that is a weird song. And yet number 20, Behind <laughs> yeah. the Cheap Seats by Alabama, which again, I'm trying to figure out how you sorted these. <laughs> Did you give Alabama credit for being literal? Or what? What? I mean, I think the main thing I said is I, I wish to have Go Cubs go higher on the yeah. initial list and that uh, we should have... Uh, whatchamacallit, and that uh, talking baseball should be higher and uh, Cubs and five should be number one. That Yeah, that's... 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the rankings are maybe the least interesting part because I've, <laughs> I've heard Joe Pesnanski talk on his podcast about his Baseball 100 series where he just basically wrote War and Peace over yeah. the course of like four months where he just wrote essays about the 100 best baseball players and he had to order them and he had sort of a formula that was kind of war based and he made some adjustments, but he also just like stuck some guys in at certain numbers because it was their uniform number. Like he didn't take the rankings all that seriously because he didn't want to devote large parts of his essays to explaining why he ranked someone here or why someone else was higher. And he didn't want to have to ding guys and say, well, this guy is lower than that guy because he didn't do this or that. He wanted to sort of celebrate what made them good and interesting. But of course, there was a war in every comment section about how, you know, this guy is 37 and that other guy is 39 or something. And I guess that just comes with the territory. And really, that's the appeal of this format. Like it, it almost presupposes that there is some objective hundred best that there is some truth that we could access if we were just honest or diligent enough about it and there is no way to do that but of course that's the appeal of it is just the the argument the the bar room kind of argument where you're saying this guy is better than that guy and someone else is going to argue about that and they will click to hate read your ranking and hopefully (laughs) they'll just enjoy the essay but I guess that is part of it here like you had to decide this and it's uh it's song preference it's so you know subjective and and everything and I could see if you maybe gave a bump to some songs that were worse songs but more baseball-y, like if the baseballness of it was integral sure. to the ranking, then maybe you could put Alabama higher than Paul Simon, even <laughs> though the song is worse, but it's more explicitly about baseball. Give it some extra credit for that. I kind of thought the reaction to this story was going to be most people didn't care because no one cares about most things everyone writes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, five people would say like, hey, cool thanks for the music recommendations <laughs> and instead it was hundreds of people just all telling us to go to hell um every person who signed up for joe's baseball 100 project and was brought into the site immediately tried to cancel their subscription out of you know f- fury yeah no i mean i think it, you know yeah I, by by nature if you do a list of something you're just asking to upset someone that's what's mm-hmm. going to happen is that if you rank if you rank things you will inevitably do things that you know get stuff wrong so like i did a i did one that was like you know the best players to wear every number and i you know said mm-hmm. that you know carlton should be 32 and not sandy koufax which like whatever it's, you know <laughs> yeah. I, like either one's fine but there were people who were not thrilled with that decision yeah. you know so you just i mean Look, we serve at the behest of the readers and, you know, I, I genuinely, you know, enjoy the interactions uh, with readers and I didn't take this one too seriously because the stakes are just so low. I was just surprised that, man, people love that song. People, people love that song. I, yeah, yeah, I guess they do. I don't know if it's just like a Pavlovian thing where you have to include center field because it's omnipresent. There is something where like some of these songs are maybe not great songs, but they're part of like the culture. They're part of the experience of baseball. Yeah. And so that kind of confers some sentimental attachment to them. If they were about something else and you didn't hear them at ball games at a time when you're treasuring the experience, 
experience already and you're happy to be at the ballpark and this is a thing you like, then I think there's kind of a grace that's given to those songs. There's like a halo effect where we all love the song because it's about baseball and we love baseball. And if you just changed all the words, we would never listen to that song. But it's, you know, part of the, the culture, American fabric and national pastime and our upbringing and formative years and all of that. I remember having a an, an interaction on Twitter about 10 years ago where I tweeted something like, there's no way to make a, a bad song that has hand claps. If it's got hand claps, it's going to be a good song. <laughs> and somebody, um, actually it was Matt Welch, uh, who is an Angels fan and is, I think, the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, at the time replied, Centerfield. And I think maybe what this song comes down to is that Roughly half of the world believes that you can't ruin a song that has hand claps, that that it has hand claps. It is therefore awesome. Like all hand clap songs are good because all hand claps are good. Uh, and then the other half say hand claps are not enough. This song is is otherwise trash and hand claps cannot save it. So I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I do kind of feel like the hand claps saved the song. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, I, uh, I, I disagree. Um, <laughs> but you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure, and uh, a lot of folks treasure this song. I would like to say thank you for two two musical recommendations, though, that are in here that I was appreciative of. One, the song "Mickey Mantle" by the singer, I guess Waters. Mm. That song's a jam. I like it. And I hadn't heard it before. And then the uh, Jolt and Joe DiMaggio by Les Brown and his orchestra. Mm-hmm. That is wonderful. <laughs> what a yeah. song. Yeah. You never heard that song before? That's I had like, never heard that song before. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's every song. old documentary. Yeah, that's there's a lot of like, uh, have I heard this in a Ken Burns documentary right. before? Yeah. <laughs> you know, feel to all those songs. Yeah, yeah. There's another one of those that you you snubbed. I think the the <laughs> Count Basie song. The did you see Jackie Robinson hit oh, that ball? Kind of yeah. in that genre. Very catchy. Yeah. Ben and I were part of a group effort at Baseball Prospectus about ten years ago, where we were all asked our favorite baseball song, and <clears throat> neither my pick nor Ben's pick uh, made your list. Uh, ben, do you remember what, was what yours pick? was? No, I have no idea. It was Baseball Boogie by Mabel Scott. Oh, okay. Which okay. you then what wrote a whole article about, right? Did I? <laughs> Maybe you didn't. Maybe this was after you'd written your Maybe. your uh, your sheet music article. Oh right, yes. Ben had a phase where he was really into double entendre in old baseball music. Oh no! <laughs> and uh, so this baseball boogie was part of that. Yeah. Mine was Walter Johnson by Jonathan Richmond. Yeah, mm. we we should have included that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a good eh. song. Yeah. You don't like it. There's a Jonathan Richmond Fenway song. It's not really a baseball song, but it mentions baseball. It's like about the neighborhood that I think is pretty good. But the Walter Johnson song, eh. So for the most part, though, like we're talking about, there's like, there's sort of like four kinds of song on here. I would say there's the one where the baseball is extremely tangential and where it's only a baseball song in the sense that it's an American song and American songs will uh, take little parts of American iconography, of which baseball is it, part of it, and therefore a baseball reference gets in the song. Those aren't really baseball songs, although they're perfectly legitimate for your purposes here. And then there's the extremely baseball songs 
And those songs are generally not very good here, but, but you know, there might be good emotional connections to them because we like baseball and they're about baseball. And then there's the baseball novelty songs of which like Take Me Out to the Ball Game is one, but you know, so is Jolt and Joe DiMaggio. And you know, so is the, the meatloaf song that we were talking about where like it's spoken word baseball or it's really, it's a novelty song. And then there's the occasional actual song that's actually about baseball although you know usually more in a metaphorical sense but cubs in five is kind of one of those and night game is one of those is is it just unrealistic to think that you can write a song that is explicitly about baseball and kind of consistently about baseball not just one line as a passing metaphor but but about baseball all the way through with baseball players named and all that without immediately becoming a dorky novelty song i mean i think it depends on the the subject matter i think if you were you know writing a song about you know being a a a young kid and um you know you wake up in the morning and the sun comes out you know, there's new grass on the field, you know, you're, you're thinking about playing the game, you know, round and third and heading for home. And then, you know, when you're on your way, you know, you see a brown eyed, handsome man, you know, I think anyone can understand (laughs) the way that you would feel (laughs) if you were writing a song about that, you know, if you were writing a song about, you know, sort of the universal, like sort of how the, you know, the, um, the, the specific is universal, you know, because everyone can relate to that feeling of when you, go to your coach and you say, put me in coach. I'm ready to play. I'm ready to play today. You put me in coach. I'm ready to play today. I'm not only ready to play this position. I am ready to become this position. I'm Mm -hmm. been eating center field for breakfast. You know, here's a good song. There's a good song about baseball. My slumbering heart by Rilo Kylie. Do you know that one? I what is that about baseball? In my dreams, I see myself hitting a baseball in a green field somewhere near a freeway. I'm all tan and smiling and running from third base. Wow, yeah, what record a, is that on? Uh, execution of all things. That's oh, a great song. Yeah, but again, it's it's about baseball for for four lines in one verse. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, I just I, I don't know that you can do it without being becoming too specific. There are no good songs about sports. Yeah, exactly. Like I mean, it's just not they're not they're not like there are good songs that are used in sports, but it's just very difficult to, you know, to write a I mean, is there a good song about football? That Fountains of Wayne song that yeah. everybody was flipping out about uh last, you know, a week or two ago yeah. about the quarterback in the pocket. Yeah, that's okay, that's one that <laughs> You know, we were talking about for unfortunate reasons, you know, like uh, it's it's a good song. But yeah, I mean, um, there's no good songs about basketball. Well, right. that's well and true. Adam Schlesinger's like, a, you know, it, yeah, took, it took a total genius to write one. Right, right. It takes like a, you know, a freak of nature who could write a great song about anything in order to do it. I mean, it's kind of the same way that John Darnell, you know, wrote a great song about baseball. It's because it's John Darnell. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I'm more of a melody man than a lyrics man, <laughs> <laughs> generally. <laughs> Maybe even more of an instrumentation man. Hi, uh, Mr. Man. Angel. My name's Ben Lindbergh. I'm a, I consider myself a melody man. 
<laughs> that's not the name of someone at the gentleman's club where we met. <laughs> I just, I think you'd think like I'm a, a writer. I appreciate wordplay. I might care about lyrics, but there are a lot of songs with terrible lyrics that I still love because I can sing along to them. And often you can't even understand the lyrics. Sometimes it's hard to even tell what they are. And I still love the song. And it almost like distracts me from the music itself, whatever experience I'm having with the music on some kind of visceral level, if I'm also paying attention to the words. And there are exceptions. Of course, there are lyricists I like a lot in songs where lyrics are very important. But on the whole, if you had to give me great lyrics or great music, I'm going to go with the music every time. And so I'm not really giving that much extra credit for the baseball content of these songs, even though I like words and I like baseball. And you'd think that I'd be really inclined to to love those songs. If the music's not there, it's just not going to do it for me. I'm not going to give you a pass because it's a baseball song. And I don't know whether sometimes people set out to write a baseball song. And so they're starting with the lyrics and maybe it's less organic because they're trying to fit the music around the lyrics. I don't know whether that happens or whether it's just hard to access like the, the pathos of sports or something when you're writing a song. I don't I don't know what it is, but somehow it, it just almost makes it seem very mundane and humdrum when you're writing about sports in a song. And it just often doesn't do it for me. So Yeah, yeah there's a song on the list by Peter Paul and Mary. And I didn't know that song and I went to watch it. And it you know, it is explicitly about baseball. It's called Right Field and it's all about playing right field and feeling like a, you know, a loser because you're in right field. But like you can tell that even they consider it like they're singing it with like a sort of goofy novelty song facial expression the <laughs> right. whole time. And you're like, you, you can really tell they're not taking it seriously yeah. in, in the way that, you know, they take hammers seriously and, and dragons seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think probably the only good baseball song is Talking Baseball, and that might be like explicitly anti-labor, uh, or at least implicitly anti-labor. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I have a, a couple quibbles here I will uh, mention that are not related to center field. So I think that you have the wrong baseball project song on here. That's my opinion. You have to have some baseball project, obviously, on a list of baseball songs, but you don't want to go too heavy on baseball projects. So you have Don't Call Them Twinkies, which is the uh, collaboration with Craig Finn, the Hold Steady. And I'm not really a Bruce guy, and I'm not really a Hold Steady guy. And uh, I think there are better baseball project songs. I think Ted Fucking Williams is a great baseball project song and the Kurt Flood song that they have, Gratitude for Kurt Flood. Really, that that whole first baseball project album is really very good. And uh, that's tough when your whole reason for being a band is that you're writing about baseball and you love baseball. That limits you a little bit in terms of the content of your song. And I do think that they're best album is their first and there are other people who have baseball specific bands like the isotopes the the punk band they've got some good stuff and i guess i would have liked to see a dan Byrne song on here dan Byrne is, is sort of like a dylan-esque kind of singer songwriter and he's written a couple baseball albums he wrote like a whole baseball album called double header that's just uh all baseball songs and some very good ones like uh ballpark for instance so 
I don't know. I might uh, put him on here just because he tried really hard. He wrote a lot of baseball songs. I'd be pretty demoralized if I had devoted entire albums to writing baseball songs and I couldn't get one on the top 30, given how bad that, that they are in general. He also has some baseball songs on non-baseball albums, which yeah. I, I think there's something that I'm not sure those songs are better than the ones on the baseball album, but I kind of discount the baseball album ones a little bit as being too much about baseball. Mm, Like if you were to ask me, what's your favorite song about Michigan? I would feel a little bashful taking it from the Sufjan Michigan (laughs) album. You know, like it just seems a little too on the nose. Yeah, that's maybe that's the problem with baseball songs in general. Just too on the nose. Yeah, one of the challenges here is that you would, I mean, you would like to have some hip hop on here because it's, you know, the Mm -hmm. dominant music over the past three decades, uh, but uh, very few songs. There are a lot of like rap lyrics that refer to baseball players or refer to baseball things, but, but I mean, it would be, uh, I mean, it would be hard to write a good baseball rap (laughs) as Ken Griffey Jr. and Kid Sensation, uh, demonstrated. But I do, I think that maybe the, the, the one exception is that the Wale song MVP is, it's pretty close to actually about baseball and, uh, it's a good song. So I would have put that on here. Mm. Yeah, and there's there used to be a ballpark, which is eh, it's pretty pretty maudlin. I I might not put that on this list, even though I I'm a Sinatra guy. But I think maybe some damn Yankees. I don't know. Maybe you gotta have heart could crack the list. It's a pretty good song. I'm not a big show tunes person, but I'd give that credit. And I think uh, Van Lingle Mungo. I definitely put Van Lingle Mungo on here. The song by Dave Frischberg because that song it's a pretty good song, and it's also basically remembering some guys the song. He's just like naming names of old baseball players. It's a combination of remembering some guys and like looking up funny names on baseball reference and then setting it to pretty good music. So I think that's uh, that's probably deserving. And I don't know, maybe Meet the Mets, if you're going to go for like a team centric song, which are almost universally horrible. But Meet the Mets, is uh, that's pretty catchy, I think. And I don't know, the the Todd Snyder song, America's Favorite Pastime, the song about Doc Ellis. Good and... Lord, how many? <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good song. I will say, like, speaking of looking for content and being desperate, I recently thought maybe I'll write a oral history of Scott Stapp's Marlins Whistler. Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I would read the hell out of that, yeah. Yeah, this month was the 10th anniversary of the first time Scott Stapp performed Marlins Whistler. I went so far as to contact his publicist to ask if I could speak to Scott Stapp because I don't really know how this song came together. I I think I remember hearing somewhere that like Jeffrey Loria like ran into Scott Stapp in an airport or something and somehow a song came out of that and I guess Scott Stapp was a, a Marlins fan so he wrote this just you know so bad it's good anthem for the Marlins who have not soared since. And I think he adapted one of his existing songs (laughs) and just set Marlon's lyrics and, you know, like the most simplistic lyrics you could imagine in the inimitable Scott Stapp pronunciation that no one else has ever said words that way. So, you know, it's like double play. (laughs) No one would say double play except for Scott Stapp. Anyway, I contacted his publicist and she was like, I'm going to have to pass on celebrating that anniversary because there's no 
way to discuss this without it being at Scott's expense. <laughs> and well, I was like, that's yeah, a good that's publisher. Fair. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, a... I can't really argue with that. There's no way that Scott Sapp is going to come out of this article looking better, really. I mean, the more we all forget about Marwin's Wilsoar, probably yeah. the better for Scott Sapp. Is... I, know, I know all of the lyrics to that song off yeah. the top of my head. <laughs> Do it. Perform it for us. <laughs> Do you guys... I, oh, uh... Uh, we, are you guys going to do it? Are we going to do it together? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I have the lyrics committed to memory. You but, don't? Uh, Let's <laughs> play ball this game day. We want strikeouts, base hits, double plays. Yeah. Take the field, hear the roar of the crowd. Now, come on, you guys. Come on, come on. Come on, Marlins, mate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <us> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep hoping and dreaming. Yeah, and you keep will soar. Hoping and dreaming, <laughs> and you will soar. <laughs> With a little faith and luck, you will soar. Yeah. yeah. Um, One uh, strike, two strikes, swing away. <laughs> a diving uh, catch, a stolen, a stolen base. base. <laughs> Yeah. Perfect game. <laughs> a triple play. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's some good shit. Yeah. Two points quickly. The best song about Michigan is Ball with a Ball. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one song that we did not include, but we did link to that I genuinely love is D Back Swing by Roger Klein and the Peacemakers. That's what the D Backs play after they win. Uh, it's great. It's an earworm. I know that one. Like, yeah. If you've ever, you know, covered a game at Chase Field, like, I got to the point near the end of my time on the beat where I would just openly root for the D-backs to win so I could hear D-backs swing as I was walking down to the clubhouse. It's a it's a great tune. Hmm. All right. I really like the song uh, The Way by Fastball. Does that qualify? <laughs> <laughs> Love that song. Yeah. Uh, you forgot the best baseball song, Sweet Caroline, and also <laughs> Enter Sandman. Well, I, yeah, yeah, dirty I water. wondered if a song could be so affiliated with baseball. Like, could, like I the, I just, when, when I saw Bruce Springsteen, the first thing I thought was, Cotton Eye Joe. was no, was this train, <laughs> you know, like if you're, if you're the, <laughs> If you're the official song, <laughs> if you're light the official up, song up, up, of the postseason, up, up, up. right? Exactly. Is yeah. "Light 'Em Up, Up, Up" yeah. a baseball song? That's more song of a baseball a song. I mean, if you're gonna go with the song, that is definitely song. yeah. When I think about lighting mups, I exclusively <laughs> think about baseball. But then you could yeah. say like Dane Cook saying, "There's only one October" <laughs> is a baseball song. You know? Yeah. So no, <laughs> I think it just would have been. Then we would have been more like Sweet Caroline is a jock jam, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I think there's a difference between songs about baseball and jock jams. I think you could definitely get 30 jock jams. You know, the 30 best usages of music, you know, in sports or whatever. Like, yeah, that that would be... Then there would be a little bit of overlap. Like, maybe, like, Go Cubs Go would make that list. But, yeah, like, it, I think it's a different category. All right. I did like this. I thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That makes uh, one of the three of us who did. (laughs) 
All right. What will your next project with Rustin be? You'll, you'll rank the. I'm the never best, working uh... with him again, man. He's <laughs> a, that guy's got terrible taste. I told him. I said, man, yeah, you, you gotta... should have blamed it on him. You you tried valiantly to get center field in, and Rustin yeah. said, "Over my dead body." <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had actually had a serious conversation about it. Like, that's... did you? Did you? <laughs> seriously though, genuinely, did you mm. average your votes together, or did you just? pick i'm no. gonna write about this one and we're on number 24 i'm gonna he, write about this one and he on sent me a list and said how does this look and i was like yeah move this here move that there move this here okay and uh, yeah all right okay yeah all right well you gave us all something to argue about so yeah thank you, thank you guys how are you how are you guys doing are you doing okay <laughs> pretty good yeah that's not good. bad good yeah okay good hang in there all right and speaking of baseball songs, if you're interested in listening to or downloading any of the Stat Blast song covers that we've been playing on recent episodes and will continue to play on upcoming episodes, I have put them all in a shared folder online, which I will link to on the show page. In that same folder, I have added all of the theme songs from Effectively Wild, including the original Stat Blast song and Ben Gibbard's outro song, and the time Sam sang the intro song by himself, acapella, and the time someone remixed Sam's acapella intro. All of that is online for you to access. I also just polled our listeners in the Facebook group because I was curious about how their listening habits had been affected by the pandemic and by the way it's shaken up all of our lives and routines. So I asked regular listeners in our Facebook group to choose from one of five options. They are listening less than usual during these strange times and they're planning to catch up later. They're listening less than usual and they're not planning to catch up. They're listening as much as usual, but at different times. They're listening as much as usual at the same time times or they're listening more than usual. And as I record this, about 1,300 people have voted. And so far, the leader is listening less than usual, planning to catch up later. About 30% of people have chosen that. About 27% have chosen listening less than usual, not planning to catch up. Sad, but I can't blame you. I'm falling behind on some podcasts myself. About 25% chose listening as much as usual, but at different times. About 14% chose listening as much as usual at the same times. So their routine has not been disrupted. And then about 4% chose listening more than usual. So that's not bad. About three quarters of the people surveyed are either still listening as much as usual or more than usual, or they're planning to catch up once they're able to listen more. So that's encouraging. Of course, this is sort of a selective sample. This is people who are members of our Facebook group and our regular listeners. But it is nice to hear that so many of you are sticking with us, even though you may not have a commute, even though you may have kids to take care of 24-7, even though you have a spouse or a partner, possibly. You are hopefully not quite as likely to tune out as you are your coworkers. So if you're still finding time for the podcast, and a lot of people posted about how they're finding time and the way that they've squeezed it into their routines, I appreciate that. And if it's brought you any distraction or entertainment or comfort during this difficult time, I am very happy about that. I also want to tell you about an upcoming event this Friday, May 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern. Travis Sachik and I will be doing kind of a live video discussion of our book, The MVP Machine, which just came out recently in paperback with a new afterword. So if you want to submit some questions that we will answer live, you can do so now. It's through an interface called Crowdcast that our publisher set up. 
I will link to that on the show page as well and in the Facebook group. So you can go in now and get your questions in and you can hear us and see us answer again Friday, May 1st, 3 p.m. Eastern. You can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount and get themselves access to some perks. Sean McLaughlin, Daniel Enden, John Moore, KDB, and Tom On. Thanks to all of you. You still have time to sign up for May if you'd like to support the podcast. And thanks to all of you who have rallied around the podcast and fangraphs at what is a challenging time for a lot of people, both personally and professionally. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we will be back with one more episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Don't say it's time. Don't say it's old. It doesn't matter. Sunshine or cold. There's nothing wrong. The game goes long. I'm sticking around to the final end. Yeah, I'm sticking around to the final end. Yeah, I'm sticking around to the final end. All right. <clears throat> All right. All right, here we go.